You are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So here we are on the fifth Sunday in Eastertide, and we're faced with what can only be called death and life. Death and life as opposed to life and death very intentionally. In this faith, death is very much real. No matter how many treatments, super diets, exercise regimens, and medical interventions we might undergo, we are, all of us, dying. But death does not have the final word. In the case of the reading from the book of Acts, which is just a snippet that we heard from a much longer two-chapter story of Stephen, we arrive just before he is put to death. Let me back up just a little bit to an earlier point in the story and give you some context as to why this mob would want to kill Stephen. He had been appointed as one of the the deacons, the, the servants in the early church, selected to serve and make sure that people's basic human needs were cared for, that people would have food to eat in the community, that everybody would have a place to stay, that there would be a sort of a wholeness to everybody's life. But Stephen also seems to have been quite a force as a communicator, which has riled up some of the chief priests and leaders at the temple, and so... They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. To which Luke adds a lovely little detail saying, And all who sat in the council looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then Stephen launches into an explanation of what he has, in fact, been teaching. And he traces the story back to Abraham, Stephen being a good Jew, knows the long tradition. He revisits the stories of Joseph and Moses, placing a particular emphasis on that episode when Moses has led the slaves out of their captivity in Egypt into the desert to Mount Sinai, and he disappears up the mountain, and uh, the people end up fashioning a golden calf because they need something concrete to worship. And he's going full steam. By the time he winds up his speech and he says to the temple leaders, you too are ever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors did. And that's when our brief reading for tonight picked up. As Stephen says, look, and his face is is, is pointed upwards, visionary thing. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, which is the point at which a relatively civilized mock trial turns to mob violence. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that, he died. As Stephen dies, William Willimon notes in his commentary on this book, as Stephen dies, he utters a prayer modeled after a short Jewish bedtime prayer, Psalm 31. Into your hands I commend my spirit. You've redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God, except for one crucial modification, Willimon notes. Stephen's prayer is addressed to Lord Jesus rather than to God. Seated at God's right hand, Jesus is invoked at the hour of death. The same Jesus whose attitude to death is emulated by Stephen. The martyr's last prayer is that his enemies also be forgiven, just as Jesus prayed from the cross. Jesus' followers die like Jesus. And so a death, surely, but one that already comes with the promise of new life. And it is a death marked not by hostility, not by fear, not by defensiveness on the part of Stephen, but rather by gracious forgiveness. Don't hold this against them, Lord. Now we turn to the reading from the Gospel according to John. We can catch a glimpse of the sort of things that might have led Stephen to face his death with such grace and courage. The setting of that gospel is the upper room on the night of Jesus' arrest. And the poor old disciples are still somewhat foggy in their grasp of what's really happening with at least some of them still clinging to the dream that Jesus will yet rouse up an army to evict the Romans and establish a new kingdom centered in Jerusalem. That's their hope. As John tells things, Jesus simply persists right through their blindness, teaching that night what they would later most need to remember. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. To this... Dear old Thomas, ever the skeptical one, doubting Thomas, basically says that they don't have a clue as to where Jesus is going and so won't begin to know how to follow him there. To this, Jesus responds with words that have continued to resonate through the centuries and right into our own time. And we will sing them in a hymn by George Herbert a little while down the line. I am the way and the truth, and the life. But before this, entangled right into Thomas's question, comes that statement about my father's house. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And Bishop N.T. Wright makes a really helpful point here, commenting, the only other time Jesus has used the expression, my father's house, it referred to the temple. The point about the temple 
was that it was a place where heaven and earth were believed to meet. Now Jesus hints at a new city, a new world, a new house. Heaven and earth will meet again when God renews the whole world. At that time, there will be room for everyone. When God renews the whole world, which is something we are still anticipating, there will be room for everyone, he says. Of course, humans being what we are, not everyone will actually opt to join in with God's utterly renewed, renewed and remade world. Remember the parable of the prodigal son, in which that utterly failed younger son, who's lost everything, is welcomed fully back into his father's house. Well, he's hardworking, but rather uptight and resentful older brother just opts to mope in the garden, feeling very hard done by the grace that his father has extended to this brother, this loser brother of his. And holding the door to the house open, the house in which a party is already unfolding to welcome that lost son back home, holding the door to the house open, the father beckons and invites that older son. Just swallow your pride, son. Let go of your petty resentments. Come to the party. Which is where Jesus leaves the parable just hanging. That's because at some point in all of our lives, we're likely to find ourselves in a place not unlike that garden, feeling things not unlike what that older brother felt. And Jesus wants the parable to press on our imaginations and our hearts. Now, one more thing from this gospel, and something that has at least a modern history of being rather abused. If in my name you ask for anything, he says, I will do it. If in my name you ask for anything, I will do it. In her book, Blessed, the scholar Kate Bowler outlines in detail how that one line has become something of a fetish for the so-called prosperity gospel movement, leading many of its key figures to justify holding staggering amounts of money, property, cars, and the like. But Bishop Wright makes the point that this isn't what the teaching is meant to produce, not at all. As he writes, the all-important phrase, in my name, doesn't, of course, just meaning adding in the name of Jesus to anything we might think of, however stupid, selfish, or hurtful. Praying in Jesus' name means that as we get to know who Jesus is, so we find ourselves drawn into his life and love and sense of purpose. We will then begin to see what needs doing, what we should be aiming at within our sphere of possibilities, and what resources we need to do it. When we then ask, it will be in Jesus' name and to his glory. In short, in Jesus' name ultimately means in the spirit of Jesus, 
which points to a willingness to lay down one's life for the sake of others, a rather far cry from preachers driving Rolls-Royce cars and staying on luxury private vacation islands for endless holidays. No. As I said as it began, these readings invite a reflection, a deep reflection on death and life and in that order. Because we proclaim that in Jesus it's not about Cadillacs and cash. In Jesus, death no longer has the final word. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.